1: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast. We bring modern medicine to strength the conditioning and strength the conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, joined, as always, by the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki. This is episode 129. We're going to be talking about progressive overload slash why that might be better described as progressive loading. But first up, a quick little plug for our pain and rehab team, Dr. Derek Miles and Dr. Michael Ray. They had their online offering of their pain and rehab seminar this weekend. So like, six days from today. If you're listening to this on Monday, when this podcast is released, um, what they'll be doing is from like 8am to about 5pm Eastern standard time, doing all their standard lectures. Uh, so that includes like evidence-based, Uh, approach to rehab, um, ACL rehab, training in youth, shoulder pain, low back pain, etc. There's about four to five lectures per day. And then they uh, round it out with a live interactive Q&A at the end of each day. So if you can make those times, if you're interested in this material, if you see uh, folks in any sort of professional capacity, so you're a trainer, your coach, uh, healthcare professional, something like that, who sees folks with these musculoskeletal sort of maladies or have these uh, questions this is a seminar for you. Both Austin and I have actually been to the uh, seminar. I um, think it's highly worthwhile, although admittedly a little biased, but hey, if you're interested in this, we have a few spots left. Um, check out the link in the description below. All right, so let's hop into this week's podcast. Now, Austin, um, you know we've been talking about this for quite a while now, but, but I guess I'm wondering, when was the first time that you realized that conceptually we thought about this differently than other folks in the space, particularly those with uh, big platforms and audiences on the internet?
2: Uh, I mean, I think that we've been kind of questioning some of the uh, thought paradigms about uh, programming for several years now, in particular, you know, uh, given our, our prior affiliations and things like that. But I, but I think that it's definitely evolved over time. And and it's evolved as a result of obviously just doing more coaching, interacting with other folks. There's been a lot more coaches and, and, and people who've kind of come onto the scene and are poking and prodding at uh, the holes in people's thinking. I think one of the uh, other sources is like our own audience, whether it be on the forum in our Facebook group, we see people post, uh, you know, videos or questions about their training difficulties they're running into. And and um, this uh, uh, this idea of how load selection and progression over time should occur is one where we see kind of recurring issues. And and some of the problems that we observe on a regular basis are those that led to kind of my questioning about, you know, how people think about progressive overload. We're seeing people who are like, oh, so I, I failed my single at eight today or something. And it's like, whoa, what? (laughs) Like how, how, you know, something is not connecting here as far as the thought process about how you should be uh, selecting that weight. Where does that selection come from? How do you approach your, your target loads and training? How do you progress them over and over what arbitrary timeframe are you aiming to do this and and things like that. So I think all of that stuff collectively has led to kind of an ongoing uh, questioning of this concept that You read anybody, you know, whether it's a lay coach or a lay person who's familiar with exercise training or even in some of the literature where it's just accepted that, oh, you know, one of the fundamental principles of exercise programming is going to be progressive overload. And um, everybody just kind of accepts that, whereas I think that, you know, we'll get into this a little bit more, but the term itself um, may lead to some interpretations that cause people to make not smart decisions in their training.
1: Yeah, I agree, and I I think that's one of the reasons why people kind of view the stress recovery adaptation, you know, that sort of model, quote-unquote, for training improvements to be this, like, discrete or very, you know, rigid uh, sort of model where those phases can be delineated uh, very specifically. And I think as we introduce, you know, kind of our conceptual understanding of how training stimulus drives improvements in performance, um, it'll be a little more clear why we not necessarily reject the model in a, you know, in total, but have a different understanding of it. So with that in mind, let's start with some background information. How do we view um, the relationship between training stimulus and improvements in performance? And I think this is best modeled by the fitness fatigue model. This was put forth by Sir Roger Bannister, uh many many decades ago uh and then has been subsequently modified based on improvements in our understanding of how the human body works and responds to training stimulus so the idea is that you have a training stimulus which is neutral it's not good bad heavy light it just is what it is it's basically the nuts and bolts of the program so sets reps exercise selection rest periods um you know that sort of stuff that's a training stimulus Um, that gets applied to the individual Uh, the individual has their own you know genetics training background expectations environment um, you know all the individual characteristics that make them an individual and subsequently their experience of the training stimulus is what we would call the training stress um, which you know could be heavy light um, hard easy etc it's kind of their experience and you can measure the physiological response to the training stimulus by using things like heart rate. Uh, you can use RPE, or, uh, reps and reserve, uh, velocity uh, of the, you know, an implement or a movement. Um, so those are ways to actually measure the sort of experience or the, the, of the training stimulus, which again we call the training stress. In any case, the training stress then drives both positive and negative sort of sequelae. So positive and negative sort of consequences. The positive um, sort of outcomes from the training stress would be called fitness adaptations. So improvements in hypertrophy, strength, power, cardiorespiratory fitness, uh, technical proficiency, or any other sort of like task that you get better at the negative sort of consequences of, um, the training stress would be fatigue. And so basically what we're trying to, um, determine each day that we train is the performance potential that somebody has. Um, And performance potential is really just the relationship, uh, the net balance, if you will, between fitness adaptations that are on board and negative, uh, the negative consequences of training, which would be fatigue. And these aren't just physiological, obviously, they're physiological and psychological. So that's kind of a background um, for how we understand the relationship between training stimulus and improvements in performance potential
2: the other way to break down the concept of training load uh, and this is kind of how we teach it uh, regularly now is is through the ideas of external loading versus internal loading um, and external load is kind of what you described earlier as the absolute magnitude of the training stimulus the sets reps exercise selection weight things like that so if i told you you're going to squat you know 200 pounds for three sets of eight reps. Um, That is the external load prescription, whereas I could apply that external load to a variety of different individuals. um, Or I could even apply that same uh, external load prescription to the same individual at different points in time or in different contexts. And those individuals would all experience that external load differently. And that would drive different adaptations across those different individuals, or even within the same individual at two different times. So, so people who may be raising their eyebrows, I mean, you've done a given uh, 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 training session, um, say when you've had a great night of sleep or a terrible night of sleep, or you've done it when you're fed versus fasted, or under tons of mental psychological stress, or when you're feeling great, confident, well-rested, well-fed, and it can be the same training prescription, and you have drastically different experiences. And those different experiences, the, the physiological, psychological response to that external load is what we call the internal load. Um, and like you said, that can be measured through any met, you know, any metric of kind of a physiological response. So that's kind of why, um, you know, heart rate response is used commonly to prescribe intensity in the context of endurance, uh, training. Or when I swam, we would do some like heart rate intent, you know, guided, uh, uh set, Uh, Prescription. Um, RPE is another uh, method of measuring, so to speak, this uh, psychophysiological response to a given training stimulus. And so um, that's another way you can prescribe training intensity. So, in other words, that any measure of internal load is something that can actually be used to prescribe training intensity. Um, We've also, you know, see people who use things like velocity-based training. And we'll talk a little bit more about methods of load selection and progression a little bit later. Um, But the concept is that there is this kind of neutral external load. It's like, you know, without meaning or context. And it can be applied to an individual or a group of individuals. And uh, all the things that make them them at that particular moment is going to guide the internal load which itself is then what drives the adaptations that we end up seeing within the individual so the goal in exercise programming really is we just want to generate the desired response i care less about what the actual prescription is uh, compared to whether that prescription is generating the response that i want in the individual
1: yeah i agree i mean basically if you have evidence that something's working however you're testing it or, 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 you know, objectively, ideally, um, sort of measuring these improvements, then, then by definition, the program's working, it's causing a net, you know, improvement in fitness adaptations relative to fatigue. That's producing the improvement in performance potential, uh, that you're seeking. Um, I just think having this sort of understanding, of the fitness fatigue model allows people to make better predictions and at least understand a little bit better like what's happening when they're training the other thing to consider here is that there's going to be a wide variation uh between the the actual transference of training uh load to you know fitness adaptations and then on top of that fitness adaptations to actual performance you know we have things like genetics training background psychological factors technical factors So technique um, in in that case and the specific adaptation, whether we're talking about strength, um, hypertrophy, power, um, cardio risk fitness, there's a wide variation in, you know, how this sort of transfers over in the training load transfers over to improvements in uh, fitness adaptations, uh, just amongst individuals, which again, we would predict because there's this huge inter-individual variability in how folks respond to a training program. So nothing new there. If you've been listening to any of our podcasts, you're kind of like, yeah, duh. Uh, What else is new? Well, what else is new is that, even if the performance potential increases because there's a lot more fitness adaptations on board than fatigue, um, your performance, the actual performance, is also influenced by other things. So, external factors uh, in particular. So, the environment, motivation, is there competition? What sort of emotional stress is going going on? Um, all sorts of things. So, you know, you could have a, a market improvement in fitness adaptations, and then go to the actual competition. And not do so well it doesn't mean that the training program was bad. It just means that your actual performance that day uh, wasn't as great. And there are external factors that, you know, may be outside your control. OK, so that's the background information on the fitness fatigue model and uh, performance potential and actual performance, all that sort of stuff. Um, let's get to the meat of this podcast. We're talking about progressive overload and uh, why maybe that's not the greatest term. Now, I asked you earlier, like, how long ago do you think that we started thinking about this in a different way conceptually than than others? Um, although it's impossible to know what everyone else was thinking. Uh, But how long ago did you start thinking that the word overload in the term progressive overload was like ill-advised? Because I I really had never thought about it until you mentioned it. And so, you know, maybe a week ago uh, for me, uh, when when did you first start thinking that?
2: Uh, I think I, I probably started thinking about it literally within the past couple of weeks <laughs> um, because, you know, I had some of those forum questions and then that made me think about all these other examples that get posted to our groups or our forum or whatever. And and I'm trying to place myself in the shoes of these people, um, think about how did you get to the point where, you know, this is the way that you're approaching your load selection? Where does that come from? Where, what is your understanding of how we select loads, how we progress loads? And then I think back to all the information that has been disseminated out there on the topic, which is some of the same information that we received when we were getting into the scene um, and and maybe even some of the same information that we, you know, put out there many years ago before we thought about this a little bit harder. And I can kind of see where this terminology can uh, lead to lead to some issues. And so, you know, where, where it came from, it's, you know, the idea is that the word overload itself, um, you can think about it meaning like, we're giving you too much of something. We're, we're supplying you with an excess of, of something, which is not exactly what we want to do in the context of training. People readily accept the concept that if you want to progress in training, you do a bit more than last time. Uh, that's like a you know one uh, uh, kind of basic uh, way that people think about this idea of overload uh, in in training. You do a bit more than last time. The implication when people say overload is a necessary component, or you always have to do a bit more than last time, is that doing more than last time itself is a way to force adaptation. Um, that I have to load you more than your current capacity in order to force this adaptation um and and you know we we do recognize that if you want to continue making gains in an exercise program uh, that the training stimulus needs to continue inducing adaptation over time i think where we're raising questions now is what direction does that kind of causation go is it that adding weight itself is the uh, the that overload is that what is forcing adaptation or rather is it the other way around whereby the training stimulus that I did generated the adaptation that then allows me to increase load the next time. Um, Those are kind of two different ways at coming at the question, and I think we've kind of flipped from the former now to the latter, where uh, kind of adaptation itself is what allows us to increase loading, rather than we must increase load in order to force adaptation. Because the those two different ways of thinking about the concept lead to very different ways of training, load selection, load progression. Um, on one hand, uh, the idea that I have to overload, I have to put more weight on the bar to force myself to adapt, is what leads people to grind and grind and grind harder and harder and harder weights even start failing sets and telling themselves this is good this is the right idea because um because this is still delivering the 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 adequate stimulus to generate adaptation when really you have ample evidence in front of you that what you're doing is actually failing to generate the adaptation that you want because you are failing sets and you are not kind of getting stronger in accordance with your load progression scheme uh on the other hand if we said uh i'm able to increase the load as i adapt that will lead you to very different ways of selecting loads and progressing loads uh over time in a way that we think is probably a bit smarter for a longer term uh training progression as well as mitigating risks of aches and pains and injuries and things like that
1: it's like a choir of angels to my ears hearing you say that Uh um Yeah, I I think, you know, when you take progressive overload, literally, uh, you know, I I don't think that people are actually thinking you should take the muscle past failure because that's not possible. Um, You can take the muscle to failure and then keep failing, you know, in subsequent sets. But, you know, even if you were doing something like um, forced reps where you you failed the concentric, right, and then you have spotters help lift the bar up and then you're resisting the eccentric, the muscle is not past failure it's just past failure concentrically you're not doing any more work or you know doing anything else other than like applying the the amount of force that the muscle can in the concentric phase where your spotters are helping you up and you know by yourself uh, uh during the eccentric phase so it's not that the muscle is being trained past failure it, it's just it's got a set amount of force production that it has available to it and, and that's what you're doing i think rather what most people are kind of referring to when they're talking about progressive overload or the way that they conceptually understand it is that you have to, you know, provide enough training stress to disrupt homeostasis, to disrupt the sort of resting level of the muscle and its current uh, capacity and function. And and yeah, we don't necessarily disagree with that. The point is that the, the actual stress applied to the muscle via the training stimulus um should be at the same relative level as the current amount uh the current performance potential which is again the the net balance between fitness adaptations and fatigue meaning that if you had enough training stress to drive the fitness adaptation you know previously we're going to keep doing that keep that same relationship we're not going to add additional st- stress um and make the the you know the relative stress higher, we're going to try to maintain it. Now, you know, if fitness adaptations are going up, right? So you're getting stronger, gaining muscle, increase in power, increase in cardiovascular fitness, then sure. The training stimulus is going to have to increase to keep pace with that. But the relative amount of stress is, is not, is no different relative to your fitness adaptations. Um, as you get more trained, it's going to take likely longer for your fitness adaptations to take place, not only because you need more accumulated sort of fitness adaptations to see an improvement in performance potential, but also because you need more training to, to produce those things. So week to week, the actual training stimulus may stay the same. You may repeat weights, for example, in, re- in resistance training, or sometimes they might even go down due to other stuff outside uh, of the gym or, or, you know, or whatever, the idea is you're just, again, trying to keep pace, trying to match the current amount of fitness adaptations that you have on board uh, with, you know, the, the, the relative stress. So if your fitness adaptations haven't increased uh, proportionally to the amount of fatigue you have on board, you may repeat weights week to week, which is fine. We're just trying to keep the relative amount of stress the same to the current level of fitness adaptations. Uh, so the idea that you have to force weight onto the barbell each time the problem is if you don't have the requisite amount of fitness adaptations on board, then what you've really done is increase the amount of stress out of proportion to what you're really able to not only tolerate, um, but also perform at the same relative level. This is, this is marked by like an increase in session RPE or, tr- you know, set RPE from week to week. Um, a decrease, market decrease in velocity, increased rating of fatigue. It's not that the session became more productive; it just got harder. It got it got different in a way. Like if the RP goes goes up, it's different in a way. You might be selecting for some like intensity specific adaptations. Um, but if you're just trying to develop strength, and you know, over time, uh, making it harder necessarily it, it isn't better because you've increased the fatigue relative to the you know potential uh, uh fitness adaptations. So again the idea is to meet folks where they're at t- so that the training load right the internal load the training stress all of those things being synonymous in this case m- it ma- is mated or is matched or is keeping pace with um the amount of fitness adaptations that someone's able to demonstrate on a given day uh i.e. their performance potential. And again as you get more and more trained it's going to take longer for those fitness adaptations to manifest. Um, and so, again, you might have to repeat weights week to week to week or repeat sort of the same training stress week to week um, in order for uh, those things to manifest for you to then increase the, the sort of uh, training load. Um, By the same token, you may go on runs as an advanced lifter where things are going up week to week to week because uh, you've effectively accumulated all these fitness adaptations and fatigue has gone down for whatever particular reason, and you're just riding the wave. So that happens, too.
2: I think everybody I think everybody's probably experienced this phenomenon where you know as you get more adapted a given dose or a given type of stimulus a given training setup will start to you know give decremental adaptations or eventually it'll stop altogether and and you know if you're wondering like how would I know when this is happening how would I identify it it's like well let's say that you're doing a program where each session is more or less the same or a program where each training week Sequentially is about the same, or training blocks are the same, or a whole template or something like that. You're just repeating that, the, those, uh, you know, one after the other. And you're aiming to add weight with each exposure, whether that's each session or each week or each block or whatever the case is, whatever arbitrary load progression uh, you have uh, uh, in mind with that program. You may initially be able to do that. So at the beginning of the program, you may be able to add weight every session or every week or whatever. And everything, you know, weights are flying up, it's feeling good, there's, you know, uh, uh, all is well, you're, you're enjoying the ride. But over time, with those repeated exposures and ongoing increasing loads, you will inevitably start to notice the difficulty, uh, the effort requirements of of those sets starts to creep up. Um, And eventually, if you just keep keep charging forward, you're going to get to the point where you're failing sets. Um, And that itself is evidence that you are no longer enjoying the same degree of adaptation uh, from each uh, exposure as you were before. Um, under the, you know, under the, the, uh, paradigm where I have to force weight onto the bar to keep, uh, driving more adaptation, this is something we, you know, started discussing like years ago. It's like under that model, you would expect that at this point in your training where things are getting super hard and you're filling sets, each training exposure is getting more and more and more effective, uh, cause it's, you know, bigger, bigger, bigger dose, and uh, and you should be getting more adaptations out of it, which is not what anybody experiences. Their progress grinds to a halt, which instead of, uh, you know, under that former way of thinking about it, if you view it as, oh, when I adapt, I am then able to add weight to the bar. Therefore, the fact that I'm no not able to add weight to the bar or I can't keep adding weight to the bar at the same level of effort tells you that you're not adapting Uh, You know, you're not generating the same amount of adaptations to uh, per exposure as you were before. Um, And that should lead to a different method of load selection, load progression um, at that point um, in order to, you know, keep some semblance of progress going instead of continuing to fight against, you know, 10 out of 10 effort sets all the time, failing sets all the time and telling yourself, yeah, that's a good training stimulus.
1: Yeah, I, I think it comes down to the fact that most people just assume that heavier is better and harder is better. If it's heavier, that's definitely more effective at producing this fitness adaptations in this case than if it's lighter. And if it's, you know, harder than last week, that means I'm, I'm working hard and I'm, I'm doing a good job. And, and I can understand that, you know, there's some kind of cool feeling. You had a really hard session at the gym. You're like, man, I feel accomplished. Um, sometimes other times you feel just laid out, but um, I guess if I could if you take home one thing from this podcast, it's that heavier isn't necessarily better if it's harder, because if it's harder than the last time you were exposed to that exercise, and even though it's heavier, it doesn't mean you actually got any stronger. It's just different. So for example, if you did a set of five reps on a squat at 315 um, and it was uh, RP8, and then the next week you did a set at 320 for five reps, and it was RP9 or RP10, did you get any stronger? No, you added weight to the barbell. So the amount of force that you demonstrated, uh, for five reps on a squat is, is certainly a little higher, but because the exertion level was higher, it doesn't mean that your actual strength potential, your performance potential was any higher. It's just, you've squatted five more pounds, which, you know, so what? It's a set of five. There are no powerlifting meets that are (laughs) done in sets of five just yet. Um, And and what's more is that during, you know, adding that set of five, adding the five pounds and going up, you know, uh, one or two RPS, you're getting roughly the same amount of, you know, fitness adaptation potential, but for a substantially higher amount of fatigue cost. So that's the thing. Like when people think that heavier is better, it's because they think that there are more fitness adaptations on board from the heavier weight. And what we know now through data on untrained and trained individuals, uh, especially when we're looking at strength and power, uh, so strength being low-velocity force production uh, measured at a specific context, and then power being high-velocity force production, again, measured in a specific context, and then also hypertrophy studies, that there are wide ranges of acceptable intensities that can improve performance. And again, you layer on top of that the individual uh, sort of response to training, and those those ranges get even wider uh, when you look at a population for an individual, they get a little bit narrower, but it's not that necessarily, you know, heavier is necessarily better, like 1% higher intensity or 2% higher intensity is better. Um, it, it, especially if it costs you more from a fatigue standpoint. Um, so what we'd want is roughly the same amount of fatigue being generated each training session, uh, you know, initially. And then as you get more and more trained, you get more and more adapted to that sort of training program, what you're going to see is less sort of fatigue being generated from the same training session. And at that point you're, you're allowing that sort of shift that pivot to occur where more you're generating more fitness adaptations relative to fatigue, which allows your performance potential to creep up. You see this in hypertrophy studies where the actual muscle growth that you can measure, um, comes on like weeks after the onset of training. You can also see this in strength programs, um, But you have to make sure that there's some sort of exertion rating in there or something to tell you how hard the thing was. So you can design a program where you just add, you know, some arbitrary amount of weight each week. Um, But if you don't have a marker of like how hard the thing was, it doesn't really tell you if your performance potential is actually increasing. Again, if you did a set of, you know, five repetitions at 315 uh, on a deadlift and it was RP7, you know, you actually rated that. And then the next week you went up 10 pounds and it was RP10. It's like, well, I don't know that you actually got any stronger. You just added weight. It is heavier. The uh, you know fitness adaptations you, you likely got were slightly different. And it's not like you're getting no fitness adaptations. It's just costing you more. And so because the fatigue went up relative to the fitness adaptations, I predict your performance potential is going to fall off or at least not be uh, substantially greater than it would otherwise be if you kept the relative stress the same to your performance potential on that given day. Um, and we're able to sort of, uh, produce, uh, you know, greater amount of fitness adaptations relative to the fatigue. That's the idea is keeping pace with the training stress, um, with the, you know, present level of performance potential. Um, and, and so it's not so much of an overload, it's a progressive load provided that your performance potential is also going up. If your performance potential is staying the same, well, then your training load, should should say the same to to kind of match that and, and, and again over time due to the repeated bout effect accommodation etc the relative amount of fatigue that you're going to incur from that training you know session is going to go down and so you'll a, you're able to manifest those fitness adaptations at a slightly greater rate which allows your performance potential to go up which then allows your training load to go up so you're, you're kind of letting the gains come to you in, in, in that manner
2: yeah I think I think we could set you know the, the idea again of just this word overload that I must overload. Um, It just may lead people to, you know, make some not wise decisions. We definitely recognize that, you know, sure, over time, as you get stronger, you will need maybe progressive loading, maybe a better term for this, like progressive loading uh, uh, is uh, an important concept of uh, smart goal-directed exercise programming, but I think just this concept of overload that I have to overload the system, um, you know, maybe maybe something that steers people the wrong way as far as how they go about selecting and progressing loads over time. And, you know, the other example when I was chatting with you about this the other day is like this way that we're talking about it now. It's not crazy or like heretical when you look at literally any other sporting context. It actually generalizes much better to how training happens in other sporting, uh, in other sports, and, and how people train for them. I think back to like my time in the pool, and you know, if I was training hundred meter sprints or something like that, it's not like my you know coach at the time would have said, "Oh, well, if you want to get better today, just swim the hundred faster than you did last time." It's like, yeah, bro, <laughs> like I know that's what I'm trying to do. Rather. The cumulative effect of the training that we got with each session is what itself, you know, generated the adaptations that then allowed me to swim the subsequent hundred meters, you know, a couple days later, or a week later, or whatever, faster than I did, you know, the first time. Um, so the the adaptation manifests in your uh, subsequent elevation and performance rather than needing to force the elevation and performance to generate the adaptation.
1: Yeah. Forcing it is not the move, as the kids say. Uh, so I, I think we've made a pretty strong case that maybe calling it progressive overload is... Less than ideal, we maybe just call it progressive loading, where you're just meeting the person, meeting the individual, meeting yourself where you're at for the given performance potential on a given day. Um, I think people might also confuse progressive overload or just this concept of overload with like overload exercises. So exercises where you can handle more weight uh, than you you can uh, by using like chains or bands or partial range motion or additional equipment. So like knee wraps you know, uh, briefs, uh, stuff like that. Uh, so just you can handle more weight on those exercises that you could on a different exercise with a different range of motion or with different equipment and it's not really an overload per se because you're you're still only able to perform or produce x amount of force in that specific context and that's what strength is it's force production measured in a specific context what's the context the exercise selection the range of motion determinants the velocity the equipment that you're using and so you know even when you're squatting against chains it's not that you're able to like push the muscles past failure past you know the volitional amount of force that they can produce. It's just a different context relative to the squat without chains. And so instead of calling it like overload exercises, you could just call it different exercises because that's what they really are. Are there unique benefits to doing those types of exercises? I think in the right person, uh, you know, probably the person that prefers those types of exercises um, and who sees, uh, demonstrable results from those exercises, you could make a case for that. Uh, but I think not everyone's going to respond to those exercises favorably. So it's not like overload work is, you know, this, this type of, uh, uh you know, uh, programming that you have to like always incorporate. I think, yeah, personal preferences and personal responses to that type of programming should predominate over, you know, any like theoretical benefit, um. But yeah, sometimes picking a higher intensity is is uh, the correct move, like if uh, you're getting ready for a meet uh, or, or something like that.
2: Yeah, and you can see how this plays out, you know, because there, there are some contexts where you may be in a place where adding weight uh, for the sake of it is kind of the right move. Now, that would be in particular if you're pr- uh, uh, you know progressing towards a test day or a, a meet or a competition um, where, yeah, your peak intensities in training. Are going to go up. Um, but you'll also note that typically during those times, we are also doing other things in order to mitigate uh, the fatigue effects. You know, maybe our, our uh, back off work is either decreasing in absolute intensity, it may be uh, peeling off some sets, uh, decreasing some training volume as you get closer and closer to your, to your competition day. So there are ways to uh, deal with that trade off. But that's a situation where, yeah, we're going to be adding weight because almost for the sake of it, because the whole point of competition is to test your strength. Um, whereas in non, you know, testing, non-competition contexts, um, that's oftentimes not the move uh, because you're probably not doing a ton of things to compensate for the for the uh, fatigue consequences of those moves in training. Um, and so it's less conducive to maintaining that ratio that you're looking for to get some, you know, useful training in.
1: Yep. Eloquently said. Um, okay. So let's move into like how to practically do this, how to practically... Progress, and so uh, you know, on any given program, the idea is that there is a specific loading zone, a specific sort of intensity uh, target that we're trying to leverage to drive the specific adaptations that are the goal of the program. And those are going to be based on again, you know, self-reported goals uh, and desired outcomes, and then also like suitability of the exercise. So you may be principally concerned with low velocity, maximal strength, one RM performance, but we may also include some like, you know, different exercises, uh, to, you know, build muscle or to, uh, you know, work around, you know, previous injuries or something like that. So you might have somebody who's a power and, uh, yeah, the bulk of their work is going to be on the squat bench and deadlift. So the exercises, uh, that are, uh, in the competition and then the intensity range is going to be, you know, relatively heavy compared to if the goal was, you know strictly hypertrophy, uh, and so and we're going to use rep schemes that allow uh, that intensity to be used at uh, you know uh, for a certain amount of fatigue cost, and to drive those specific adaptations. And so most of the reps schemes are going to be you know in the one to six rep range for low velocity strength. You know, if you have a meet coming up, you're going to be doing some singles, maybe some doubles, uh, and and certainly, you know, triples, fours, fives, and and even some sixes on the upper end range. If if most of your programming was done in you know eights, nines, tens, it's not that you can't get stronger there. You can definitely in- improve your force production there, but those probably have less transference to one RM. Um, so the majority of the programming, particularly as it gets more and more specific leading into either a test or a peaking phase or something like that should end up being in that lower rep scheme. Because again, it allows you to use heavier weights, Um, relative to higher rep schemes and then those specific adaptations um, are are kind of what we're selecting for so the the intensity that's used it kind of determines the type of adaptations that you're going to get but if you if you had an exercise like a leg extension in there uh, you know we're not going to do heavy sets of five or six in general there, mainly uh, because that exercise is not really well suited towards that. It's not really, we're not really trying to improve your one RM performance and leg extension. We're really in that case trying to isolate the quadriceps and, and either uh, build additional muscle mass there or desensitize people if they're dealing with some knee pain or, you know, something like that. That's those might be some reasons why you include that. Um, And so you've picked the, uh, You've selected the desired adaptations. You've picked a specific loading zone. And so for, again, 1RM sort of strength performance, most the majority of the work is probably going to be done in the 70 to 80% range. And, and if you're trying to really hone in on 1RM strength performance, you're going to do some singles. That's probably going to be above 90%. And the idea is that uh, you're trying – it's this optimization problem between stimulus potential and fatigue. Uh, so you've got to select the stimulus that's appropriate for the current level of performance. And again, the stimulus, which is that external load, has to do with things like average intensity and volume. Um, Because you've already picked the exercises, and you've already sussed out the desired adaptations, which is going to tell you the the rep scheme. So like what average intensity are you going to work at, and how much volume are you going to do? So in order to select the intensity, we recommend using stuff like RPE, reps in reserve or velocity, because that allows you on a given day to sort of match up, uh, you know, your, the, the, uh, your current level of performance with the appropriate stress. If you just had discrete, you know, arbitrary sort of loading, uh, a protocol, like do this amount of weight or, uh, do this amount of weight relative to the previous week. It's like, well, you might get a mismatch there and yeah, sure. It's heavier, but if it's harder, you know, you might not actually be generating, more fitness adaptations relative to the fatigue. You might be generating more fatigue relative to fitness adaptations, which is overall not good for the uh, you know performance potential going, going forward. So you, you need some way to kind of match where you're at. Similarly, you, you might undershoot if you're just discreetly adding five pounds or two and a half percent or something like that per week. If your performance potential markedly increased, you might be underdosing the stress. So having that you know the subjective sort of input so reps and reserve or rpe can be useful there or it could be objective it could be velocity Um, uh, either or both of those things might might be useful there the idea though is that you're going to try to keep the relative amount of stress again relative stress to your performance potential you're going to keep that constant over a training cycle and and so then the idea is that uh, you're going to see if that level of stress drives fitness adaptations over that training cycle. And uh, once you start seeing a sort of an increase in performance potential, which again is the, the basically demonstrating to you that the amount of fitness adaptations that you're generating are greater than the amount of fatigue that you're generating, you're going to keep riding that wave until it no longer uh, progresses. And so you, you wouldn't necessarily want to uh, change that if you're seeing you know, good, good results. If you're not seeing results, then you have some troubleshooting to do, but let's stick with this example for a second. So Austin, let's say that I uh, programmed for your squat, a set of four at eight uh, as your top set, that kind of ballparks your performance potential for a given day. And then um, I might have you do back off work at 72% of the estimated one RM um, uh, as determined by that top set. Uh, You're going to do, you know, six sets of four there. Um, What would be your week to week strategy there Uh, With respect to uh, selecting a load,
2: I think that, you know, we definitely recognize that people want to get stronger. We want that they want their weights to go up over time as a way to demonstrate that. And, you know, anybody who's listened to us in any other context knows that we're all about kind of the mental approach to everything, you know, whether it be training, rehab, you know, et cetera. So I think that there is a place for us to. Go into our training with the assumption or expectation that we will be able to increase load, say week to week. I think it's important to be realistic and to recognize that that's not always going to be the case. Um, and you should be open to evidence that uh, that you will not that that would not be an appropriate move on a given day should that evidence present itself. Where would that evidence present? Well, it would be in the course of your warm-up sets, um, and this is an example of you know where I've seen these issues. Like in our group, people will say, you know, oh, I was working up to my four at eight, which I was hoping was going to be three sixty-five. Um, I did three fifteen for four, and it felt like an eight, uh, so I went up to three sixty-five, and I failed it. <laughs> it's like you blatantly ignored the evidence that you had in front of you, uh, that you were, that that was not in fact an appropriate load for you on that particular day. Um, and so I think that's kind of where people can go wrong and, and, uh, where I would approach things a bit differently in saying I'm going to work up and and I'm really at this point experienced enough to mentally assess like how al- almost every warm up set, uh, uh, moves, bar speed, feel, things like that as I'm working up. Um, to get a sense of uh um is this going to be a strong day is this going to be uh, meets expectations meets targets day um or about the same as last week or is performance down a bit and then kind of my warm up sets each help me calibrate my way up um but definitely if i'm like oh you know i hit this uh last warm up set and it was far harder than it than it was supposed to be today then that's some evidence that Maybe today's not the day where things, you know, the stars have not aligned for me to increase my load today. Additionally, overloading, if I'm thinking, oh, I need to progressive overload and add weight to the bar anyway, fight, grind against a weight and fail. That is not going to be the the, that's not the move, as they say.
1: Yeah, I just think it's not a productive use of training time, because the, the fatigue is out of proportion to the potential stimulus. And so, sure, you know, in the short term, that feels great. Add a little weight to the bar. Yeah, it was harder. Cool. You know, you overcame that barrier. You're the champion. You went to war with the weights that day. But, um, you know, did you really, you know, provide the right training stress relative to your current level of performance? And uh, if the answer is no, well, that long term, that kind of sets you back. So. You know, I think I, I've been training now for over 15 years and I've had a lot of uh, experience personally and professionally with uh, guiding others. And, and I think, you know, being a little bit more conservative with respect to load selection is probably the correct way to go about this, or at least the most productive way to go about this. Now, I know, you know, the people that I work with, or we work with, um, and the people that we, we interact with online there's definitely some selection bias there because these people are really motivated and, you know, want to get strong and this, that, and the other. So, you know, there's likely a, a rather large cohort of folks who would be better served by, you know, maybe being a little bit more aggressive, but I I just think like if, if given the two options, you know, undershooting versus overshooting, I'd I'd prefer to be a little conservative, you know, mainly because I think as long as you're getting somewhere close to the appropriate stress, uh, relative to your your performance, um, you're you're going to see improvements, and, and I think airing uh, on the underside, you know, the the low side, uh, probably prevents you from generating too much fatigue. Uh, rather, if you're on the high side of that, more often than not, I, I don't think that's that's necessarily the case
2: yeah i think there's you're right about some selection bias i mean if you're dealing with people who are highly motivated to train who want to get stronger and in particular those who love this idea of like optimal training which is not a thing but they want to be on like the 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 cutting edge of their adaptation um at all times and they're worried about wasting time in training by like not Adding weight at any given moment when they could have. I think those are all the recipes for people that we see um, either not making the kind of progress they want, or uh, unfortunately, people who end up in our, you know, with our rehab team uh, more often than they should. Um, and so, for that standpoint, yeah, I think those folks probably can can err on the side of being more conservative, knowing that they deeply understand the desire and importance of progressive loading over time. I'll say um, for general population folks. I do think that you know it's it's useful to continue putting out the message that progressive loading is useful for a variety of outcomes, um, but uh, you know the rate at which that is done, the intensity with which that is done. Um, uh, and the kind of health benefits that you stand to get from it uh, you know we don't need to be on the the absolute cutting edge of your level of adaptation at all times and there may in fact be some benefits to you know like we're like we're saying um, kind of letting the gains come to you rather than trying to to force the gains when they may not be there
1: yeah the the reality is that you know designing an exercise program and then you know doing it we're basically just hedging our bets based on you know our knowledge of how most folks respond to training based on evidence and, and you know, experience Uh, it's, it's an educated guess that the program that we're doling out is going to drive the fitness adaptations that we desire. And so it's effectively a predetermined amount of stress that we're trying to impart upon the individual. And, You know, by keeping that stress relatively the same, again, relative to the performance potential on a given day, we're able to kind of suss that out over a training block. Now, if the amount of stress is changing substantially over uh, a training block because people are overshooting um, significantly or, you know, yeah, potentially undershooting significantly, we're not really able to do that. Effectively, we have a program Maybe the nuts and bolts of the program are the same, but the actual t- total amount of imparted stress is varying wildly week to week, uh, you know. And so it's it's then really hard to kind of ascertain like is this program working because you're doling out different amounts of stress. Uh, so yeah, the idea is that the program is designed. You have specific rep range, and average intensity that you're shooting for, uh, and, and amount of volume. Um, that you feel like is going to impart the correct amount of stress for an individual based on their previous training, their genetics, their expectations, their goals, etc. And then you're just trying to see if it works. And you're trying to keep the amount of stress relative to the performance potential similar uh, throughout a training cycle. Yes, the training stimulus may increase because as the performance uh, potential increases to keep pace um, with that relationship. But if the stress is all over the board, it's really hard to kind of like suss out, like, did this program work or did it not work? And so troubleshooting becomes much, much harder. Um, And ultimately we're, we're trying to avoid that. Now people are going to ask, well, all right, so we have these sort of average intensity sort of uh, ballparks for, you know, productive training for strength. We have these rep schemes that we, you know, accept to be You know, the have the most transference to strength performance if we're talking about low velocity strength. But what about volume? You know, like how much volume is enough, or what's the appropriate amount of volume to sort of drive uh, or produce the the correct amount of uh, training stress? And the short answer is we don't really know. the The data is kind of all over the place with respect to like what level of volume actually produces improvements uh, with respect to strength. And then if you go further into like hypertrophy, um, and cardiorespiratory fitness, there's, you know, there's a a lot of data out there showing this sort of dose dependent relationship between training volume and, uh, improvements performance. So you might take from that relationship. Well, the more volume you can do the better. Uh, and that's true up until a point. It's just that, there is a, a kind of, again, another um, inflection point where doing more volume doesn't actually produce uh, greater improvements. And so some people have taken that to mean like, oh, well, that's just your max recoverable volume. You know, the point at which adding more volume doesn't improve more adaptation Then you know, that's your max recoverable volume. You can't recover from it. So it can't, you know, improve the amount of performance adaptations on board relative to fatigue. But we, we don't really see that. Uh, relationship in the in the literature rather wh- what you see is that people their work capacity which is another way to describe their sort of max recoverable volume meaning they can tolerate that volume and objectively recover um, you know is a certain level and there's a gap uh, between that and sort of the maximum amount of volume that produces the maximum amount of returns uh, with respect to fitness adaptations and so y- you you know I I think if somebody's work capacity is substantially limited, then those two numbers may be the same. Meaning, like if they don't actually have the ability to tolerate a substantial amount of training, then sure, the maximum amount of training that they actually can tolerate and recover from is probably the same number as their max adaptable volume. But other folks, particularly those who've been training for a while, who are well trained and you know have been gradually exposed to progressively greater amounts of volume, have decent conditioning, etc., there's going to be a gap between you know these are the This is the number of volume, number of sets, um, total. Volume per week, uh, that produces the maximum amount of gains for this individual. And then there's an addition, there's a gap between that and like how much volume they could actually do and recover from. And so we're trying to suss that out over a series of different programming blocks, you know, as the individual changes, as their goals may, may change or as they, they grow as an athlete. And so, um, w- what we're trying to do again is provide an educated guess on a program that uh, generates X amount of stress and see what that does with respect to fitness adaptations And, uh, if you're changing the stress substantially by overshooting or again, markedly undershooting, uh, I think it's going to be really hard to tease out that relationship.
2: Yeah, there's definitely, there's definitely some room, some role, you know, for, for, um, higher intensity, you know, particularly peak intensity stuff like mental training, pushing your limits, uh, especially for folks who have never done anything physical before. Like obviously, you know, training should be quote unquote hard to some extent, but I think that what we're talking about here is, you know, wh- the if you're if you bought into the idea that there needs to be some progressive loading over whatever arbitrary time period you're talking about, whether session to session, week to week, block to block, whatever the case is, there don't just blind yourself to everything else that's going on and throw more weight on the bar because the paper told you so, um, or the the you know, rather there is a lot more evidence. Uh, that you can make use of, and let's say that you know session to session or week to week, block to block, whatever. The efforts, the the, the difficulty, the challenge of doing these things is going from seven to eight to nine to ten to fail uh, failure, like on a RPE scale, for example. Rather than interpreting that as desirable, <laughs> I would change the interpretation and say this is interpretation that what I'm doing is not really generating the kind of adaptations that I want. Um, uh, over time, because evidence of adaptation, uh, say, for example, from a strength standpoint is yeah. when I first started training, um, you know, I was recently posted about this my first training session like over a decade ago, I think I squatted like 155 pounds or something like that. This was after I finished swimming for sets of five. Um, and I imagine that those were probably like RPE six or seven for the, you know, the first time I was doing it, but, uh, yeah, over a decade later, yeah, I can probably do a set of five at RPE seven in like approaching the mid five hundreds. And so the, the same rep scheme, the same setup, the same effort level, um, the load that is required to, to hit that has increased markedly, which is the evidence of adaptation. Um, it wasn't that I had to add the weight in order to force that adaptation to happen. The adaptation happened and that facilitated the load increase uh over time
1: yes the adaptation occurs due to repeated loading of the same relative amount of stress uh compared to your performance potential and it just manifests it happens rather than having to force the issue um i like it okay let's move in to the lightning round now look sometimes we ask questions on our instagram pages you know we make a post Tell, tell people we're doing a podcast, and we ask you to you know post your questions in the comments. So if you're not following us on Instagram, you know you should do that. Uh, so these are some questions from my Instagram post. So first question, Austin, uh, how do you assess if you should stay with your weights uh, from last week or add weight to the bar? Do you decide by performance throughout the warm ups? Is that the only uh, consideration?
2: Pretty much by bar speed and feel of my warm up sets. Yeah, that's pretty much it. There are some situations, again, uh, like I said earlier, where um, I may uh, choose to increase weight on the bar, into, like regardless, even if it's going to make it more difficult. And that would be in particular where I'm deliberately aiming for higher peak intensity um, uh, in order to prepare for a test or a meet day or something like that. Where you know, say previously I was training and doing singles at rpe six or seven um, but i'm approaching a meet and so i want to practice with a little bit heavier it might be a single at eight it might even at some point hit a single at nine on some lifts for example um and uh um, and, and that might be a situation where i might deliberately do that even if the performance of my on my warm-ups is not necessarily indicating that i'm like that much stronger um but during routine training then yes it's pretty much how warmups are how warmups are feeling um and i kind of use each jump to kind of calibrate um where i end up selecting now compared to the prior week i come in with a, like a ballpark range so say last week i hit 525 or something and so this week i might say okay my range is you know going to be uh, my broad range. When I pick up 135, it's like, all right, today I'm going to be someplace between 500 and 550. And like each warm up as I go up, kind of narrows that calibration range as far as where am I feeling things are going to be. Is it a is it a 530 kind of day, a 550 kind of day, or am I you know things not going great today and it's a it's a it's a pullback kind of day? But yes, that's pretty much it.
1: Yeah, that's pretty much the same. I, I and for me, again, unless I got I have a meet coming up, um, I, I just. I am able to kind of suss this out just by feel. And I t- tend to try to be more conservative now because I understand that that top single or top set, it's really, it's my ballpark of the day. Like my, my ballpark, you know, performance potential for the day. Uh, and if it's not entirely sort of accurate, I'm, I, I, it, I don't really care. I just want it to be precise. I want to use like the same metric from week to week to week. And then, get the work in if i if if i'm getting close to a meet i'll probably be a little bit more aggressive and i might err you know towards overshooting then at that point but i just feel like the trade-offs in general are not really worth it for for routine training um when i got a program for people especially the overshooters i usually make them repeat the last week's weight or or just a little bit under it because i'm like look dude if you got it then this isn't a big deal you know what I'm saying? So like if somebody the previous week squatted like 315 for a set of four at RP8 and they wanted to go up to, you know, 320 or 325, um, particularly if this person has a, a history of failing at like their top set, that's supposed to be an eight or seven or something like that. I'm like, yeah, well, why don't you squat 310 or 305 for your last warm up set and see how that goes. They're like, But it's so close. I'm like, yeah, but if you're strong, it doesn't matter. I mean, and I'm being serious. I'm like, if you're if you're strong, if your performance is high that day, it doesn't matter. It's just another warm-up set. And it, and and that will readily identify, like, if going up was a good idea. And it was a useful set. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, so I do that all the time. And I just have people count that as, like, one of their back-off sets if they end up going up above that. If they don't end up going up above that and they identify, like, oh, boy, I may have been a little, you know, Overconfident. It's cool. We saved you. And then well, that was your top set. You go back down. Okay. How much time would you recommend allowing to pass before attempting to correctly identify if the current program is not progressing individual performance? Um, I think it depends on the actual adaptation that you're looking for. So like for hypertrophy, for example, I, I'm not going to be able to tell anything until, you know, five weeks, six weeks, seven weeks. You know, something like that, depending on the person. And, and and that's if we're just going by measurements, right? So, like, it's going to be hard. You would want to see other trends on, like, you know, in, during the programming that, like, yeah, the average weight that you're using is going up, uh, you know, every week, every other week, something like that, every third week. Um, from a hypertrophy standpoint, because strength isn't the most important thing. From a strength perspective... Um, usually I, I give people kind of like a three week window. Like I'm giving them like you have a low stress or a pivot week or something like introductory week where it's lower stress, kind of get used to the program, understand my programming style, et cetera, new movements, whatever. And then I'm giving them like three weeks of almost the exact same prescription to see like what's their trend in strength performance. And if it's flatlined, that's that's where the hard decision becomes relative, you know, t- to the extent that this is super important. <laughs> like, do you continue on the same road and hope that it goes up, or risk that it goes down? Um, so that's like the hard hard decision, if you will. If things are going up over three weeks, cool, stay the course, continue until proven otherwise ineffective. If things are going down uh, significantly, you know, I don't one percent to me is is noise. You know, where does that stop? Mm, it kind of depends on the individual. It's like I feel like Justice Potter, you know, like I know it when I see it. But like if uh, you know if the performance is trending down significantly over those three weeks, I'm kind of like, nah, this this program was inappropriate at this time. So bag it, switch to something else. But that's kind of how I I think about it. And again, it's just going to be adaptation specific.
2: Yeah, I think somewhere in that three to maybe even four week range is probably reasonable, particularly if we're focusing on strength. However, I'll say that um, before I start changing up variables, I'm going to be having conversations with the person to get a sense of um, how are they selecting load, what's their approach to progressing load. What, you know, I might even ask to see some video because maybe I'm maybe when I watch their sets, if they're not if they're you know say they're hitting the same top weights week to week. But visually, I can tell that subsequently, they're much easier, or maybe they're much harder, or maybe they are about the same. And so I want to get a sense of how they're going about trying to actually execute the program um, before I start changing things. Because sometimes, you know, people may come in with some prior habits, some prior behaviors, some prior thought processes um, uh, uh, for this that are... um, that are not conducive to what we're trying to accomplish. So I'll have that kind of conversation. If, if everything looks reasonable, if they're like, you know, doing their warmups, you know, making appropriate jumps, setting themselves up with those kind of like calibration sets, um, to select a weight. And then they're just, um, maybe apprehensive. Um, then I might give them permission to, Hey, let's push five pound or something and see how you do. And then maybe they like bust through a plateau that they're, you know, a, a mental block or something like that. Or, um, Or alternatively, you know, it may be an issue where um, they're thinking about this all wrong and I might need to adjust that. Or if everything's in line, then yeah, I'll start changing up some of the programming variables. But conversations come first.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I find that, like you said, the behaviors with how people like pick loads and and go about their training tend to be really, really interesting and ingrained because, (laughs) because, yeah, because I, knowing what I know now to the extent that you can know something but that's for a different (laughs) podcast um it is highly unlikely that your performance potential is the same week to week so if all of your weights are staying the exact same week to week i have serious questions and it doesn't mean that you're in error or you're, that they're a bad person or anything like that. It's just highly unlikely because there's so many variables that go into this. Is it possible? Certainly, but if you're hitting the exact same weights at the exact same RPE, ah, man, I real I need to see some video. We need to have a talk about this uh, to kind of better understand like what you know our communication strategies, etc. I had a I had a client once who he his squat workout on this introductory week was. Four at seven, or no four at six, four at seven, four at eight, right? He was supposed to do that. Um, and then the next week was four at eight, two down sets of four at some percentage drop. So his first first the first workout he did, he did 185 pounds uh, at no kilos shit. 185 kilos for four at six, 185 kilos for four at seven. And 185 kilos for four at eight, <laughs> and I, I, and then the next week he did 185 kilos for four at eight, and then did the back off sets off that. And I was like, How is it possible that 185, so four, <laughs> 407 was both a, a six or you know, a six, a seven, and an eight, and then two weeks in a row, an eight, you know. And he's like, Yeah, I just don't get RPE, but that was the thing. It's like, Well, I mean, we should let you know, let's let's talk about this, uh, and try to get a better understanding of each other here so that way we can get some productive training in because i do think rp can be useful but if someone doesn't understand it you know there's a limiting that's a limiting factor uh, but yeah if your weights are staying the same exactly the same week to week to week i think we we can we can do better uh, maybe some of that's understanding about how to use rp how to use velocity uh how to use the feel of the bar how to make jumps right so like i this that, that guy i was like what's your last set before you go to 185 and he was uh, he said 160 which is three fifty two. I'm like, it's kind of a big yeah. jump. Yeah, I was, I was like, why don't why don't you do one fifty and then one seventy and then figure out where to go from one seventy. So I mean, that's just an idea. It doesn't mean it's going to work every time, but that's that's the whole thing. If you're if you're you know, uh, my warm up sets these days are very similar to like how I end up picking a top set. So like on deadlifts, I usually go one thirty five, two twenty five, three fifteen, 495, ninety five, five eighty five, and then. Depending on what I'm doing for the day, then my next set is either my last warm up set or like a work set. So if it's yeah. a si- if I if I need to do a single, I'm usually going to try to pick something in like the six thirty to six fifty range as like a warm up. Yeah. And sometimes that warm up, you know, if I'm feeling great, I may just you know, I'm I've probably going it. towards the upper-
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> I'm going to the upper end. Uh, but if I'm feeling, those those few times when you feel bold enough to make the extra plate jump. That's that the five eighty five to six seventy five has only happened once in my life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's great, you know. But um, yeah, you can sort of get a sense get, get a sense of that.
1: Uh, but I think I, again, my weights don't ever stay the same week to week to week. So, like, I, I guess what I'm getting at is that I don't know that you're warm you should put too much thought into your warm up set, like. You know changing them week to week unless you have that issue if you have that issue that might be a way to kind of like get around that issue keeping the weights the same every week okay practically how can you tell if one isn't progressing because they are not eliciting enough adaptations or if it's
2: because fatigue is masking those improvements yeah usually it's a conversation I like ask them uh how sure. they're doing what what's going on what things are feeling like um yeah usually just flesh that out by conversation i would say
1: yeah and also, like, I think one way to kind of like guide that conversation, at least and at least kind of generate some initial hypotheses uh, would be how long the person's been on that program. Because if the program's been the same for a long period of time, it's it's unlikely that the program is all of a sudden generating way too much fatigue unless the person all of a sudden started way overshooting their RPS. Or there's some environmental stress or outside the gym stress that's sort of layered on top of that and made the, the training stress untenable. But, but that's kind of how I think about going into these conversations. It's like this person's been on the same program for like six weeks now, um, and they've been making you know, really good progress. And so why aren't they making progress now? And if it's not like, all right, you've been overshooting the RP or like something in the personal life or you know whatever occupational life has happened if that's if none of that's there then i'm like all right well it's probably not enough stimulus
2: and, and so the other thing i would uh insert the there is, type. Uh, is is knowing if it's uh, one lift or all lifts that's another sure, thing yeah. that come up sometimes with folks too Yep. Yeah. Yep.
1: Yeah. And so in that case if it's if it's one of those things where you suspect it's not enough stimulus to drive the adaptations then you can either add more stimulus or you can change up the stimulus, change up the formulation. Um if it is too much fatigue the the other person and and again you've identified this because the person uh, has been able to tolerate this uh, or it's a new program and the person's like I'm, you know, none of these things are reliable indicators of too much fatigue, but these are the things that I hear reported most often. Uh, people them, are,
2: are pretty common. Yeah. Yep.
1: Yeah. The, that, uh, people, their like sort of motivation to train is kind of waning. Um, usually because the sessions are really, really hard. If they are tracking session RPE, that they're, you know, eight, nines, tens every time that they train. Um, uh, some people will, uh, uh, even a report like just being really tired, just general, general fatigue. Uh, and so if that's the case, you can lower the average intensity You could by lowering the RPE. You can change movements to things that are more tolerable or more preferable for the individual. Uh, you know, it just really depends. Do all sorts of those things. But the idea is at that point, you've programmed something or the program the person's on is... Right at the limit of their work capacity it it doesn't necessarily mean that it's too much volume. it It just may be that the way the you know, the entire program is put together is just not something that they can tolerate and And so you know, there are very low volume programs that I couldn't tolerate, even though my work capacity is relatively high. Why? Because the average intensity is way too high, you know or whatever. so um anyway. Hopefully, this podcast is useful for folks trying to figure out like how to pick the weight on the bar and why the term overload may not be the correct description of of you know how to make progress in the gym. Um, any parting shots for the uh, for the audience at home, Austin? All out of shots. <laughs> <laughs> this is shot free. Yeah, you got your, you got your two. That's that's all you need. Am I right? Um, <laughs> That's a vaccine joke, guys. <laughs> okay, so that's a wrap on podcast episode 129 Progressive Overload versus Progressive Loading. Hopefully, you guys enjoyed this. Um, hey, wherever you're getting this from, take a second, leave us a five star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast. And then, again, as a reminder, we have our online virtual pain and rehab seminar going on this weekend. If you're curious about that, interested in potentially attending, uh, check out the link in the description below. Really appreciate you joining us here. On Monday, every Monday, for the Barbell Medicine podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. Again, I'm Dr. Jordan Fagamam, joined uh, by Dr. Austin Baraki, and we'll see you guys next Monday.